Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. Now, in this episode, I wanted to take a look at the gig economy. That ties on quite nicely to the episode we did a little short while ago on the sovereign individual about how, in that book written in 1997, the authors thought that inevitably um, that we were going to see the rise of the gig economy. Well, they called it uh, pay by task. Now, that is something that has started to emerge. Um, although there are obvious cultural resistances to it. It's not how people are used to working. It's not how the sort of social contract um, is written. But it is something that people are increasingly going into. And for this episode, I'm very uh, happy to be joined by George Bagby. George, thank you for coming on. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So the reason um, I was so keen to talk to you, George, is because you have actually been living this life. You've been um, operating in the gig economy for some time now. Is that correct? That is correct. I've been supporting my family, working mostly gig jobs. That's mm -hmm. been my main thing uh, for the last year. Wow. Okay. So we, we so you weren't always obviously in the gig economy. What were you doing before that? I was a private school liberal arts teacher for ten years. So I taught Western literature, uh, basically Western Civ. Uh, I taught American history, and I taught political science. Uh, I taught a number of other subjects as well, but I got canceled. I was accused of thinking terrible things, and I was escorted out. And now I'm a cabbie, mostly. Hmm. So, I mean, this is this is obviously something that the faces on. I think this is probably... a. A sharper issue in the US where the permitted boundaries of acceptable thought are perhaps even narrower than they are here, although we're obviously heading in the same direction. Uh, but I mean, we, we were chatting beforehand and it sounds to me like the, the, the terrible thinking that you were doing was basically showing um, a, a broader perspective rather than a, rather than a very singular narrative. Well, when, when it comes to talking about race relations in the United States, there is one acceptable narrative. There is a pantheon of saints that uh, explain the issue in acceptable ways, uh, ways acceptable to the regime. And one of the ways that I got in trouble was for a number of years, I rather thoughtlessly, maybe I was naive, um, I passed out a sheet of paper full of quotes from various black civil rights leaders, uh, black American authors, people like James Baldwin, Malcolm X, um, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, people like that. Uh, I'm trying to remember all of them. Anyway, uh, I passed out. I passed out a sheet of paper demonstrating that they thought very differently about the issue of segregation, in particular. Right. Basically, that the the American black community did not speak with one voice on the subject. I was so, particularly so you, were, you weren't even drawing you weren't even it. drawing comment on this. You were just literally quoting their own words, what these people actually yes. thought in their own words, and and because you were presenting um, what is always true in in history and politics that there was a diversity of opinion, that was just yes. unacceptable. Yes, that was highly offensive to certain members of the board of my last school. Remarkable. So, uh, so there, there was a there was a great book on on this subject. Um, I'm I'm particularly fond of a Louisiana writer named Robert Penn Warren. He was America's first poet laureate, actually. Mm. Uh, but he he wrote novels and he wrote 
books of history as well. He wrote a book, and this is his title, I want to emphasize, it was a different time. He wrote a book called Who Speaks for the Negro, in which he went around and interviewed various civil rights leaders in the 1960s. He, he interviewed Malcolm X and MLK, for instance. He asked them all the exact same questions, and he wrote a book demonstrating that they all had different ideas on the subject. So that was really my my inspiration for that particular handout. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, uh, it cost me. Yeah, <laughs> it I mean, wasn't uh, wasn't the only thing that was being talked about at the time, but uh, certainly was was a uh, unfortunate thing for me to stick my neck out for. Yeah, uh, and 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 especially more that you were you were literally just quoting what the the people themselves thought. I mean, I, I've I've seen this watching um, as I sometimes do American um, news shows. Um, whenever you get, um, you know, a black individual who says, for example, that they're going to be voting for Trump, the the absolute horror on the faces of the CNN hosts who want to pretend that, that basically um, that that group is a monolith and they all think the same way about everything, um, which is um, which, to my view, is is the racism. But um, you know, obviously, um, you know, they they have a different take on these. Indeed, uh, it's it's akin to uh, common misconceptions about the American Indian, for instance. Uh, something I used to emphasize with my students: the nations in North America, the American Indian nations, mm. were like the nations of Europe. They had radically different languages. They were often, if not constantly, in conflict with one another. They had ancient ethnic antipathies towards each other. They form themselves into a great number of distinct groups, and that explains a lot about their history. But the the common misconception is that they are a monolithic whole, that they can be treated as a single group. But of course, that's a much smaller issue, and uh, there's much less tension about that issue. There are less yeah. than 1% of the population of the United States at this point. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I mean, the, 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 I mean, this is a bit of a tangent from the thing that we we're going to talk about, but uh, but I mean, I I just simply have to comment that it is extraordinary that um, white liberals are under the impression that the only group that ever has a, a difference of opinion over anything are white people, and that everybody else is a monolith, like you say. So, <laughs> so I mean, shocking. But so you you were, from the sounds of it, a very good teacher who went to primary sources. Um, you quoted. Um, people in their own words, you inspired thought. Presumably your students had pretty good grades and learned how to think as a result of this. Um, but for, for, for complicated reasons, which is basically the, the decay of the West, um, you could no longer continue in teaching. And so that is presumably what then prompted you to, to, to opt into the gig economy. Exactly. Uh, difference of opinion on various subjects is no longer allowed. Hmm. And so I am no longer a teacher. But uh, what I what I did this year is I I decided that I wanted to do something that was flexible that would accommodate another part time job that I had. Um, being a private school teacher in America means that it's not your only thing. So I I had other part time income coming in anyway, um, and I I had it to be I had to be flexible to accommodate that. So I wanted something that wouldn't require me to talk to people all day because that had previously gotten me into trouble and I was sore about it. So I wanted to drive around. Uh, I wanted to be quiet. 
And turning to gig economy work turned out to be a good option for that. Also, it's entrepreneurial. You are rewarded for the amount of effort that you put in, which was also very different from teaching. Um, teaching mm. is a salary job. Uh, you can put a tremendous amount of work in and you see no difference in pay. Um, with the gig economy, if you stay out all night, you make an money from doing it. The more time you put on the road, the more tasks you accomplish, the more money that you make. So I really liked the, the restoration of the connection between effort and reward. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because if you, of course, if, if you are a salaried employee and there's not some other mechanism behind it, which there can be apart from apart from the salary, it, it has to drive this continual sense of resentment that you will be, if you are good at your job, that you see around you people who are putting in the bare minimum of effort and getting paid exactly the same. And the sort of motivational effect is therefore always to push you to do a little bit less every day. Yeah, you, you figure out what you can do to get by to satisfy your managers, and uh, that that could be all that's required. It's very similar to a discussion I had on this on this uh, podcast a short while ago with a NHS doctor who found exactly the same thing. If anything, he was getting in trouble for doing um, too much, for carrying out too many operations. Um, the incentive always was, okay. yeah, the incentive always was to perform form the bare minimum. So, uh, wow. yeah, I I extraordinary time. So, so first of all, your motivation for getting in was—I um, mean, effectively, you were driven to it because you, you were taken out of your job and you, you needed something new. Um, but the experiences—you must have found that there was a at, a at a fundamental level, it is more rewarding to see um, hard work correlate with reward. There's got to be something much more naturally in tune with that because, I mean, as a species, you know, going back to subsistence farming or hunters or whatever it is, there's always been that connection with additional effort yields additional return. Um, and it was through the gig economy that you, you you got back in touch with that sort of fundamental nature of, um, of, of human striving. Certainly, initially, that is a, a major motivator for me, um, that that connection, I remember that was something that I talked a lot about uh, with my friends and my family when I first started driving full time. But what develops over time, uh, over the course of a year, what I've realized is that there are major hidden expenses in doing this sort of work full time. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I did was I bought a passenger van that enabled me to offer different kinds of rides. Um, I can I can offer uh, a large sized ride. What uh, the the class that Uber refers to as the XL ride, the extra large ride. Mm -hmm. I can seat seven passengers in my van, and uh, that that increased my income. So now now I can pick up large loads of cargo. People who have a lot of bags at the airport will order a van because it's more convenient. Sometimes it's just uh, one or two people that just want a lot of extra legroom. They'll order the van and they'll pay the extra price for it. But after driving this van for almost a year now, I'm accumulating lots of expenses on this van. I'm, I'm having to, to buy tires because I run through my tires. I have to get regular repairs. And so at this point, I'm working another part-time job 
that is really only paying the expenses on repairing the van. So after okay. after a while, the the apparent earnings decline, and you start putting much more of those earnings into just maintaining your equipment. So you mentioned Uber, but I mean, presumably you've worked for, for other apps as well. Yes, um, I, I worked this weekend, this past weekend, mostly for Lyft, which is another rideshare company. Do you have that in England? Yeah, we have the Uber tends to dominate, but, but we have the other one. Yes. Yes, Uber dominates here as well. It's like three quarters of the market. Mm. Um, but they compete against each other. What happened this last weekend was Lyft offered me a very handsome bonus to complete 70 rides. So if I did 70 rides over the course of three days, I would get a $150 bonus, which is a substantial bonus for a weekend. Um, Uber did not offer anything comparable to that. I think Uber's largest bonus this weekend was $25. So I, I drove almost completely for Lyft this weekend and got my bonus and turned off my app and drove home late last night uh, after working like over 40 hours in the course of three days, something like that. So, t so tell us about the, the economics of, of going down this route, because no, I mean, I, I've even thought of it myself. I mean, I, 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 I don't need to do this, but the idea of, um, you know, taking some downtime, which you wouldn't actually be doing anything useful and spending the evening driving around, it sort of appeals. I've never actually gone through the process of doing it, but I, I kind of get the appeal for it. Um, so I can see a lot of people going into this sort of, if the barriers of entry of getting into it are fairly low, but for anyone who does it on a more serious basis, the economics do need to stack up. So, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. First of all, about the barriers of entry of getting into it. How easy is it to go from the point of thinking, yeah, I want to try that, to to actually being set up and, and earning on this basis? Um, and, and then maybe talk about the viability of this as an income stream. Yes, of course. Well, it seems to me that the barriers for entry are very low. And that's that's something that I've talked to a number of people about since then, because there are people who struggle to support themselves, struggle to find work. All that is required to get started with Lyft or Uber is a credit card, basically. You, you just need enough credit to have a working credit card. And you can take that to car rental agencies that cooperate with Lyft and with Uber. And you can rent a car and you put down a deposit that sits on the, on the credit card and you begin earning that same afternoon. And that is okay. how I got started. I went down and I rented a Toyota Corolla. It was a it was a simple compact car, an efficient car, um, real easy car. And I could get the economy rides on Lyft. I actually rented through Lyft initially, and I drove full time for Lyft. Driving for um, driving through the rental agency with the rideshare company means that you cannot use the other rideshare companies. Oh. However, I was able to use other gig apps like DoorDash, which is a food delivery service. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that with the rental car as well. It was limitless miles. All of the maintenance was covered. While I was driving this car, I had the tires replaced and it didn't cost me a dime. I had the oil changed a few times. That didn't cost me a cent. 
it just cost me a little time sitting at the shop, but uh, that was a minimal inconvenience. And that was like a treadmill. Uh, once once you sign up to do that, you need to work. You need to work a twelve hour day, at least, just to pay for the weekly car rental. They charge you something like two hundred two hundred fifty dollars a week to rent the car. Okay. Uh, all the maintenance is covered. You don't. You aren't writing off mileage on your taxes or anything. But you you don't want to so, worry so, about the depreciation so just to understand, of the equipment anyway. If, to just understand, so if uh, on a Sunday you decide you want to get into this, you can set yourself up and be ready to go Monday morning, and you would have to work a twelve-hour day that Monday to pay for the weekly rental of the vehicle. Yes. Okay, and then everything after Monday, you do a long day on Monday, and then everything after that is is profit. That's correct. Okay, so it sounds like the economics work. Yeah, uh, they they do if you're willing to put the time in for it. And of course you make much more money out of this arrangement the more days of the week that you work. Hmm. What I found is I, I typically work 12 hours uh, when, I, when I do a shift driving. And that is a long time to be in the car. That is the maximum amount of time that the apps will permit you to, to drive for them before they turn you off. Right. So there is a government regulation on there where the, the apps will keep records of how long you've been on the clock and eventually you exceed your limit and they shut you out. They, they give you warnings. They say you have an hour of driving left today okay. uh, before you have a mandated break and then they kick you off. But they don't share information with the other app companies. Right. So technically you could you could drive 12 hours for Lyft and then drive another 12 hours for Uber. But I don't know anyone that would attempt yes. to do so. After 12 hours, you you are beat. You are done. Um, yeah, I can imagine. You pay a cost for that the next day. You have much less energy and presence of mind the next yeah. day. Um, well, and if you what, do what this for several days in a row, as I just did, you're, you're very tired afterwards. Well, what if you've only got an hour left and then the, the, the next person who's got in wants an airport run that is two hours away? Well, I, I've been in situations like that before. They are more inclined to give you that ride and let you complete it, okay. even if it takes you over your your allotted limit for the day. Um, I think that I've gone over my limit in those circumstances several times. Okay. So I, I imagine that's how they work. So to, to, to compare it to, say, being a teacher then, because that's where you came from, what... What works out better? Is it putting in the same amount of hours teaching or the same amount of hours driving? I would certainly prefer teaching. It is it is mentally stimulating. Um, driving deadens the mind. Even even if you're li listening to audiobooks all day, you can't you can't absorb information like that. Uh, and and it is physically. The worst thing I've ever done to my body. Oh, really? Uh, driving the gig economy. Yes, um, I have aches and pains and physical problems that I've never had before. Um, and this is because I'm sitting in a car seat for twelve hours at a time. I mean, I get out, I stretch my legs, I I get a cup of coffee, mm. uh, a sandwich. You know, I I do try to move around. I, I'll get into the back seat and lie down. Um, when I'm sitting at the airport waiting for a ride, 
uh, but it's definitely the worst thing I've ever put my body through. I, I can I can sympathize. I mean, I've never driven for 12 hours a day, I don't think, but I certainly have had 12 hour plus flights um, and they are they are very grueling. I mean, the, the seats are probably a bit less comfortable than car seats, but but all the same. But ju- but just on the pure economics, if you spend X many let's I don't know working week as a teacher is I know thirty hours a week or something like that. If you were to spend those thirty hours driving or thirty hours being a teacher just on the pure economics, which which one pays better? Driving pays better. Okay, but I. I come from a private school background, uh, so public school teachers in America have retirement benefits, medical coverage, all, all sorts of extra things that private school teachers do not have, um, and are also paid better than private school teachers. So it, it's a it's a comparison that's that's worthy of mention. Um, but I, I have definitely made more driving than I have had teaching, uh, but my expenses are also burdensome and Mm. i still don't know how the taxes will work uh that's another that's another aspect of gig jobs that i have yet to encounter i am apprehensive i'm worried about it uh, because i have not had tax withholding uh this is this is contract work so there's a whole different sort of tax form that's issued for this. Uh, if you have a regular hourly job or salary job, if you are counted as an employee of a company, then the, um, the company has a responsibility to handle some of the tax withholding, some of the tax organization for you. When you are a contract worker for a gig company like I am, none of the taxes are withheld. On the other hand, doing what I do means that I have lots of expenses and all of those things are tax deductible, including the mileage that I put um, while, I, while I'm working. Um, I get something like 64 cents of, of a tax benefit per yeah. mile driven. Uh, that's, that's the United States tax, that, that's the federal tax law about mileage. So there's a huge mileage deduction, and that's all exempt from taxation. So I have that working in my favor. I've got some other things potentially working in my favor. Um, I'm still I'm still uh, hesitant about forming an LLC and doing this all under the cover of a private business. Um, I'm not sure what the benefits are there. I'm not. I'm not a finance guy. I'm not a business major guy. I'm a humanities guy. Um, I know it would benefit me to look into these things and figure out what the best route would be for for taxes. But that that's a huge thing that's kind of hanging over me right now. I'm getting ready to file my taxes, and I don't know what the accounts are going to tell me. So that's in all likelihood, I'll owe taxes. So. Yes. So you say that it's, it's, it, from your experience so far, it's a, it's a little bit too soon to tell whether it is a positive financial move or, or not. No, I think that I, I think that even with my expenses and even with the uh, taxation, it turned out to be a better year financially for me last year. 
uh, than it would have been if I had just kept on teaching as, as I did. Um, hmm. There, there's, uh, there are, there are factors that I am still, still not clear how how they're going to work. Like the depreciation on my on my van, for instance. Eventually, I'm going to have to buy a new car. Um, I've I've been supporting a family doing this and have not been able to put aside money for a new car. So in the short term, I think that it will work out for me. But if I had to keep doing this for several more years, it would not work out well for me. Um, my, my expenses supporting my family are just too high. Mm. So for people that do not have dependents, for people that are renting, say, they don't have to maintain a house uh, for people that don't have uh, dependent children or a dependent wife. Uh, doing this sort of work may be a good lifestyle. Mm. For someone like me, it is something that gets me by in a crunch, um, but it's not a good long term solution. So, so it's not it's not any replacement for my career. Okay. Uh, it's something to hold me over. It, it, it has been a good holding pattern, but okay. But you, you don't feel that it is yet at the point where um, it, it's perfectly viable for the average person who, who basically gets fed up being told they're not allowed to think and they're not allowed to speak, um, as we often are in this modern world. It's, it's not quite yet at the point where it, it's, it's a viable alternative. Indeed. What about what about some what what about some of the other apps? Because I mean, of course, they, with the gig economy, it's not just driving. I mean, there's well, as you've already mentioned, there's food delivery. But I mean, I, I've seen apps when in, in my venture capital days. Um, I was invited to invest in a company that was doing uh, basically all sorts of odd jobs. So it might be a catering firm has to set up a venue, and they just want five bodies to come in and help them move tables and around and stuff like that, or unload boxes on or, or basically whenever somebody somewhere needs bodies they could bring people in have you have you seen any of those type of apps no um i'd be interested in that kind of app actually because mm. one, one of my problems right now is lack of physical activity so anything that gets me out of my car and gets me moving around is a mm. treat for me um and, that, and that's one of the good things about gig jobs is if you get tired or if you have another thing to do, you can always turn off the app and go and do something else. Um, but no, I haven't used those kinds of apps before. I have used DoorDash. I have delivered uh, food for Uber. Uh, there's a there's an app connected to the Uber app. It's called Uber Eats. Mm. Um, I've done mostly food delivery, but I, I've also done package delivery. Um, I've picked up boxes i've picked up bags and driven them miles and delivered them um i prefer driving people with uber and lyft i prefer picking people up at street corners and taking them to their destinations because it's much less hassle with uh with food delivery stuff it's ridiculous it's uh it's a really outrageous silly thing to do it seems to me my my experience doing that, and I've and I've spent many nights doing that. Um, haven't done that nearly so much as I have uh, Uber or Lyft, 
But the experience doing food delivery is you get an order on the app, you go to McDonald's, you read a series of letters and numbers to the clerk at McDonald's. You tell them you're there to pick up an order. They say, which order? And you you read, you know, XQL156 or whatever to them. N- not a name. You don't give them a name. They want the, the code or something. Mm. Then you wait for them to finish the order. You pick up the order. You take it to a trailer park in the middle of the night and you seek out the door number and knock on the door or take a picture of the bag or something like that and, and drive away back to McDonald's to get another order. And there are so many steps. There are so many things that go wrong. There's an awful lot of fraud in this business. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.